0: Welcome to the 100th episode of Brother, Brother, Brother. In honor of this monumental milestone, we celebrate one of America's greatest bands, The Replacements, in a manner that's never been done before. We brought together Peter Jesperson, founder of Twin Tone Records, discoverer, and longtime manager of The Replacements. Michael Hill, former Warner Brothers A&R man who signed the band and shepherded them through their post-Let It Be major label years. And Bob Mayer, noted music critic and author of the band's definitive biography, New York Times best-selling *Trouble Boys: The True Story of the Replacements*, one of the greatest rock and roll books ever written. These three men have never publicly been interviewed together, so it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Peter Je- Jesperson's living room, where he, Bob Mayer, and I sit. And in an homage to the legendary *Bastards of the Young* video, Michael Hill joins us on speaker from his stoop in Hoboken. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, and congratulations to my brothers, Jeremy Sartori, Christian Lewis, and our intrepid producer, Damian Kendall, on 100 episodes. And this just in, you can now listen to episodes on the brand new Brother 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 app, which also gives you access to additional articles, music clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It's also the place where you can interact with us directly through the talkback feature. Ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search Brother, Brother, Brother in iTunes or Google Play. As always, you can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. So, once again, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today, for the first time ever, talking to Peter Jesperson, Michael Hill, and Trouble Boy's author, Bob Mayer, about the replacements. Their dismal Rock and Roll Hall of Fame chances, suitcases full of cocaine, Paul Westerberg's prodigious songwriting talent, their mercurial live shows, and their hazardous history. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother 100th episode.
1: Can ask a question because I very rarely have have a chance for for Michael and and Peter to be together. One of the things that was interesting to me was. Um, the, one of the things about The Replacements is because they weren't maybe a conventional band in some ways, it was also hard to get certain people to work with them, and when it came time for the major label era was producers. Who do you get to produce them? I mean, Michael and I have talked about this many times. You know, who, who can we get to produce them? Because it was before the era of the alternative rock producer in a way, so you were kind of dealing with... like, And Michael, that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me, um, starting when, when Peter was still involved with the band on on Tim... Uh, it was like, you know, Alex Chilton produced the demos, there was some vague talk of maybe getting Robin Hitchcock in to produce the first mm-hmm. record, eventually and fairly quickly Tommy Ramone produced it, and then in the subsequent years and albums with Please to Meet Me and, and, and Don't Tell Soul, Michael talked to some really interesting candidates uh, that, you know, it might have been like uh, uh, chalk and cheese to, you know, to work with the replacements, but... Uh, I mentioned it, Michael, because I was just in Nashville seeing this Rolling Stones exhibit, and they just had this big—you know—there's a big Jimmy Miller segment, and I know he was one of the people you talked to. uh, That's right. Tons of people. It was just. Who who were
0: some of the people, Michael, that you that uh, you entertained as potential producers?
2: Gosh, (laughs) we went everywhere from uh, well, yes, Jimmy Miller to. very early on, you know, I wanted Scott Litt to produce them, but the band felt they didn't know who he was, and he wasn't, I mean, it's funny, they felt he wasn't famous enough for them. And, of course, we ended up using him on uh, All Shook Down when his price had gone up dramatically. Uh, I, I remember writing a letter to Brian Eno once, uh wow. To see if he would be interested, I would. I was always trying to find people who were a little bit outside of the normal producer-producer thing because I, I just thought a oh, Rai Cooter. I remember once approaching Ray Cooter, that would have been a disaster. You know, it's a tough customer.
1: Ray Ry- Cooter. Uh, I think Pete Townsend, but uh, Paul wanted maybe for Don't Tell a Soul was thinking that, and, and I don't know if it got. If, it, if that actually ever got far, and then you know there was like the old rocker guys. You know, I think Tom, was it Tom Worman that you had the Paul Stanley? Oh
2: God, yes, yeah, Tom Worman, and of course, did I say Chris Thomas already? No, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Chris Thomas, Tom Werman. Uh, what's the guy? The Neil Young guy? Why am I blanking on his name? David
3: Briggs. Was it? Yes, yeah.
2: no, no, not Briggs. The other. Um, oh,
3: Elliot.
1: Um,
2: Elliot Mason. Elliot Mays. Yeah, yeah. So we were, we were we were finding like a lot. I was thinking, which Jim ended up in the picture too. You know, Jim Dickinson, who are uh, veteran producers with great rock credentials who worked with really difficult people over the years.
1: <laughs> I mean, that had so to have that, been a jumping-off point, no? Yeah, I, and there were yeah. people too that were. I know Glenn Johns was somebody that was considered, but yes, he was too expensive. True. Glenn Johns also. But it would have been interesting and then, to see. And then a, like I,
2: I would throw out these young names to them, you know, Scott among them, and uh, they kind of didn't want to hear. And by the time, uh, of course, the new management was in place, they were shooting for the moon. And I, every time I would bring up those things, you know, they were not, Nobody wanted to hear those ideas. Although, you know, looking at the world as it is today, in a world of great independent music and independent <laughs> producers, etc. You know, I could have really thrived in that.
1: <laughs> it would have been interesting to me, though, to see... And you never know, because it was the 80s and the way producers were producing in those days, but it would have been interesting to see if, like, what kind of record Chris Thomas would have made, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, That's or, actually my question. What, what, what was the role of a producer on a Replacements <laughs> album? Is it... I mean, was it camp counselor and sound advisor, or was it...
3: Uh, did <laughs> it lean heavily one side to the other?
1: Well, Peter produced, what, four records, or co-produced...
3: Uh, I mean, I think it's probably like, I think, you know, there's, uh, you know, certainly in my area of production, I'm not a a pro producer, so I did a little bit of everything. There are other producers who are most more specialized, more, you know, like the musician that helps with the, you know, Mm -hmm. chord changes. I hope this setup isn't too intimidating for (laughs) you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, uh, so, I mean, Michael could probably talk to the, you know, to the, you know, the the bigger picture uh, producers better than I, but I think with, the replacements, I mean, you know, it had to be somebody that they really felt got the songs. Uh, it had to be somebody who was very patient. Uh, you know, I mean, we were all... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think, um, you know, those early records, I mean, really, you know, we, we made Sorry Ma, um, basically where the band came in and recorded, and then they all left, and Paul and Steve Felstead mm-hmm. and I finished the record. Then when Stink came along... We were trying to do that record in in secret for one and do it fast and get it out fast, but also the band said, Hey, we weren't allowed in there, we weren't in the studio on that first record, we wanna be around for this one. And they were, and Steve Felstead pulled me aside mid session and said, You can never have the whole band in (laughs) when we're overdubbing and mixing ever again. And so they were, you know, uh, exiled from the studio after that. So the record's really essentially, you know, Sorry Ma. Hootenanny and Let It Be Anyway were made with the whole band recording, and then once tracking was done, Tommy and Paul, uh, Tommy and Chris and Bob would leave, and Paul and I would finish the record with the engineer, whether it was Felsted or Paul Stark.
1: Actually, one of the things that, in, in, in talking to Michael, of like, uh, what were you looking for in a producer, and why did these people work and not work, I asked Paul that. I said, you know, what were you guys looking for in a producer? And he said, quite honestly, and this is kind of at the beginning of the major label era, we didn't really know what a producer <clears throat> was supposed to do. Because if you look at the first four records, it was kind of an in-house production. It was Steve Felstead, the engineer, Peter, uh, you know, Paul Stark on, on, on Hootenanny, uh, some combination. And there was a different combination almost every, each of the first four records and then they kind of made, uh, they kind of kept it home based with Tim. Had Steve Felstead engineer and Tommy Ramone produce. So recorded in Minneapolis. Re- recorded in Minneapolis. So once they <laughs> got to really kind of the era of let's really get an... and, and Tommy Ramone was kind of part of the Sire family and it, it made sense. It was not such a leap. But when they really started interviewing producers uh, as they did very famously in '86 for Please to Meet Me and then into '89 and uh, on Don't Tell a Soul it was this kind of thing of like they didn't really hadn't really experienced a traditional big time producer or production or session or studio really for that matter and that didn't happen until they went to Arden and that's why I think in a way uh you know some people like the record more or less in terms of a production uh, why Please to Meet Me is kind of cohesive in a way and complete maybe more is because Jim was sort of Jim Dickens was sort of the ideal thing they worked at, at Arden at that time was the top flight, you know, technical studio. And Jim was just enough of a, of a weirdo and an outlaw and a, and a sort of conjurer and a trickster to sort of distract them. And And the truth of it is, when they went to make that record, they weren't a full band. They That's the only record they did as a trio. Bob had just left. They actually probably really went thinking, we're never going to finish this record, we might break up. And so they were a kind of weakened unit. They couldn't fight back the way they did um, when they made they tried to make Don't Tell a Soul with Tony Berger where they made it with Matt and so they really only you know it's, they really only made two two records as uh, really only one record uh, conventional way as a four-piece band with an outside producer and that was don't tell a soul because they made please to meet me as a three-piece and all shook down was basically paul and session guys uh, you know and 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 the band too but in a kind of yeah. so it's weird it's it's they never really you know and that was part of the problem that's why michael had such a hard time and don't the, don't tell a soul the production of it was a nightmare they really were almost unproducible in a sense and that's why it really only happened once in that kind of conventional way. Let's go to a big studio, get an outside producer. I don't know. I, in looking, thinking about that, it is kind of a unique thing. Well, they, they, the sound of the band, I mean, the sound of those records is very
0: different. All yeah, of them right. are very different. Everyone. And so, you know, I, you know, if I'm not asking you to betray any sort of confidences, are, are there ones that you are happy with and
3: ones that you are, are unhappy with or think that could be better? In retrospect, well, I think uh, I I always say "Pleased to Meet Me" is easily the best sounding replacements record ever. I think you know when you listen to something like you know Alex Chilton, I think that's just a perfect, pretty much a perfect track. Um, and I and I lament uh, some of our decisions on the records I was involved in, but we were really flying by the seat of our pants. You know, I I'd never produced produced a record before, so it was really just you know you know us together s- trying to get what we heard in our heads, you know, onto the tape or whatever. So. It's the sound of a band. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and you know that was like you know for for instance when we were doing Sorry Ma, you know I really thought you know we first did demos in the studio with them, uh, and 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 we got some good stuff out of it, but I felt like, you know what it, we got to capture these guys in more of a live setting, so that's when we uh, did a uh, set them up on stage at the Longhorn and set them up on stage at First Avenue during the day and tried to simulate a live you know, situation on a stage and then roll tape. And that failed miserably. So we went back to the studio and finished, sorry, Ma, in the studio. We just kind of had to, I think they had to, they may have thought they would be better on a stage. And once Mm -hmm. they realized that that wasn't the case, then they really settled on the fact that we got to make this work in a studio. And they did make it work.
1: Would you say, though, that, Michael, that uh, that was the hardest thing in terms of, uh, in some ways, I mean, obviously, with Tommy Ramone, it was kind of grandfathered in. With Jim... It was he kind of came in at the last minute or at, towards the end of what had been a difficult process, and obviously Don't Tell a Soul was a kind of uh, very difficult process. But would you say that like getting the, getting the producer and getting them to agree to a producer and make it work with a producer was always kind of the hardest part of your job working with them?
2: Um, uh, I think all of it was the hardest part <laughs> of the job because the producer was always hard. Keeping everything going was really hard. The fear of some, you know, destructive or self-destructive thing going on. You know, there, there was always something. I think every step of the way there was drama. Um, but I think it, it, when I look back on it now, hindsight being twenty twenty, um, you know, is in, in certain respects like much ado about nothing. Because really, I. I, I if you found a compatible person like Jim was, for example, or ultimately how Matt was, um, you could do it. And I think that there was always so much emphasis on the producer as this maestro who's right. going to make something happen for you. When really, the, the producer, without denigrating their job, because it's really important, if you don't have it there to begin with, you know, theres a slight Wizard of Oz quality there so right. I always felt we were kind of overdoing it I always was anxious to get in and get it done right. um, the, the thing is I I feel now that the Jim Dickinson situation which was a lot la- you know I was getting desperate and coming up with ideas at that point but it was perfect in a way because if I may say so I feel like like myself or Peter, Jim had an appreciation for the band on a very emotional level about the music and about the people. And he was an oddball in the nicest possible way. And he had a really interesting history, you know, uh, whether it was with the Rolling Stones or Big Star. And therefore, he did create an environment, whether they understood it or not, he really cared so deeply about them. And was so nurturing of their music as well as of their personalities and certainly I think he had an enormous effect on Tommy mm. which was a great thing and so the, the, in a way it was kind of magic to have somebody like that and that kind of person is really hard to find Yeah, you well, know, and- like I don't see him as a traditional producer, <laughs> I didn't see myself as a traditional A&R guy, I didn't See Peter as a traditional manager. You know, what right. I mean? I'm not
0: sure you were the dealing people... with a traditional band, were you? <laughs> right. <laughs> right,
2: you know. Well, I, I feel like it was it was a, a funny alchemy at work with very particular kinds of people.
1: Well, and that's why I think that worked. And you know, the other thing too, we talk about, like you say, maybe an overemphasis on producers. There's some of this is, uh, you know, a band. They they weren't operating in a vacuum. There were things going on with the band. And it's like when you look at the four major label albums. It literally is a different version of the band, in essence. Like, they did Tim tracked it as a three-piece Bob essentially came in and did his overdub so Bob was in the band but he wasn't as integrated in the group the next record they just did it as a three-piece the next record after that was Slim's first time in the studio with them and the record after that it was Paul and sort of various iterations of the group and session guys so every you know if you ask why do the records sound different is because the band was constantly in changing or in turmoil or the lineup or the dimensions and the dynamics of the group were different too so it's like But I think that's also kind of why the catalog is so amazing and so varied, you know, even the major label catalog, it's like, it's almost like a different band and a different thing every time out, you know?
0: about, you know, sort of uh, re-remembering things, and, and again, we, uh, we've established that, that everybody uh, in, in this particular instance uh, involved here, Michael and, and Peter and, and Bob, are all, um, have ace uh, memories, but, you know, I, I remember going to see, the first time I ever saw the replacements, and I was happy that, I, that it was in the book, was at the living room in Providence, <laughs> and they played about 40 minutes of metal covers and then left. Um, I was psyched because they said hello to me before I was a teenager. It was kind of exciting, but you know, I've been, you know, I've sort of re-remembered that as an amazing time. But in fact, I snuck out of my house, could have gotten a great amount of trouble, had to drive down to Providence or catch a ride down to Providence. And then I saw a band I really wanted to see do 40 minutes of Sabbath covers. Um, but you know, in retrospect, I was pissed. Um, there's got to be some of that, I mean, some of that feeling, obviously, I'm, I, I imagine, you know, this has all become a, a great story now, but there had to be times when you were just angry that, uh, about the shit that was going on. What, what were some of the, the sort of those
1: points, or were you just this patient <laughs> Oh god. I think it's exaggerated though you would know best Peter in the in the 6 years that you were with them. Certainly the the really kind of weird shows it was a couple years maybe two, even 3 years before like the cover sets really started happening. That's yep. like no band that's brand new is going to do that. But you would say that's still probably
3: under 20% of the shows that you saw were like that? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I run into so many people who say, you know, I never saw The Replacements do a good show. And I think that's just remarkable to me because, you know, I saw them hundreds of times and, and you know, I, 20% is maybe a good number. Right. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, uh, uh, for one reason or another, would decide to flush it down the toilet, whether it was Paul's decision or Chris had too much to drink on a rare occasion or... Uh, you know, uh, Tommy was pissed off and sulking and, you know. Well, listen, I'm sitting here in Peter house and we're looking at a copy of uh, the LP
1: of The Replacements uh, for Sale live at Maxwell's 1986. That didn't come out for 31 years in part because in some corners of the <laughs> label or the band's mind, well, that wasn't a very good show. And you listen to it, it's a great show. It might have not have been their best show, but that just tells you how high the bar was, yeah. too, for them when they were good. Uh, they were very good, and when they were great, they were transcendent. So even a sort of.
0: <laughs> but my my point in sticking myself in the middle of this, which I should sure do, is that they you know the the sort of reimagining of something that at the time was was difficult and disappointing, you know becoming lore now. Um, yeah. So yeah. you guys must have you guys must have a, a truckload of that kind of of. Uh,
3: Michael laughed. Did you have a specific example, Michael?
2: (laughs) No, I'm just thinking, it's just so funny because it comes up all the time, and uh, uh, it is lore now, and I think about it, and and, uh, honestly, Wyndham, I I can tell you, I don't want to go into the specifics, but I've actually gotten Bob's on shows where, you know, someone will say, oh my God, I just, someone actually uh, read Bob's book, and it suddenly hit them, I was the same guy in the book. <laughs> I was like, damn, I'm going to get this job. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's wonderful stories to tell. and But I, I'm, I'm only because, you know, you look back on it's like everything in life, if you've lived long enough to see it, that um, the stakes were, were so different then. I remember that Maxwell show vividly because I had, I was the guy, you know, behind this, setting it up, and it cost us like something like four grand, which I thought was an, a shocking amount of money. And the fact that we didn't do anything with it, like, completely freaked me out. Uh, but, oh, my God, I spent four grand of Warner's money, you know, and nothing's coming of it because basically there were no, like, coherent versions of the songs from the, the record we had put out, whereas there are some great songs there. Those were from the Twin Tone catalog, so from a promotional standpoint, people didn't regard it very highly. Um, but I remember that show as being more fraught than the show that it actually was. When I finally heard the tapes, I was like, holy shit, this is really fun, and it's really good, and what was I so worried about? And I I, I know I was worried about, you know, they were down in the basement misbehaving, and I thought that was going to really throw things off, and it did To a degree, but not to the degree I've seen it in, you know, in other uh, in other places. But uh, it's yeah, it's it's all this incredible outsized thing. uh, I think our standards of, of, you know, the world. How to put this? You know, the world of music in certain respects is a real much more level. Field than it was back then because even though you can't really make an awful lot of money these days you can get your music out there you can find a niche where you can play and people aren't judging things in quite the same kind of linear way that we did back in the old days where you know uh, indie band goes on to major becomes really successful
1: you know there was just this sort of uh, gatekeeping way that, mm.
2: hmm?
1: gatekeeping kind of that was much more
3: uh,
2: there, there were, yeah, people, there were gatekeepers, and then there was a, a trajectory. You made, you know, your first sector Oh, by the third one, you're going to be <laughs> selling millions. Um, you know, the world's a very different place now, and, uh, you know, to hear what we were doing then, it just, like, it, it, it all makes so much sense, but back then, everything, because you had to consider yourself very lucky to be on one of those labels, the stakes just seemed... Infinitely higher, and I think we all bought into that. I think the band had a great desire for you know the accolades as much as everybody on the label wanted them to get them. And you know, there was always, I always used to say, you know, they you're handing them a check and they're kicking you in the ass at the same time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And the, the, the truth of it is, is the, the the lore, you know, now that's seen as this thing, it was real at the time, too. Uh, you know, when you guys were on the road in 84 and the cover sh- sets came out and the shit hits the fans came out, probably the next time you went and toured, people were expecting this kind of circus. And even going back to, like, The, the Replacements as a very young live act, I mean, Paul said this is... You know, his thing was, if you saw the replacements on a Tuesday, don't come in and say Wednesday, oh, did you hear the replacements? It was, did you see the replacements? So he right. had a sense of that showmanship of, you know, if I if we, and I'm not saying it was completely calculated, but he definitely had a sense of that, that he would do, and Slim said this to me once, he would throw some weird wrinkle into every show so that... 30 years from now, the person wasn't talking about the music or how consistent the set was or how good the rhythm section was. But remember that weird thing Paul did when he sucked helium from the balloon or, <laughs> or he climbed on the thing? And so, so you know, the lore was was kind of a contemporary thing as the band was going. And it, and it was, the band was, you know, some of their reputation rests in that 84, 85 period where it was a lot of word of mouth. Of these kind of crazy shows, and then kind of shit hits the fan, sort of confirm that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was it was a legit thing, and it was real. I think what's probably exaggerated is just like you know that every show was like mm-hmm. that when it's it just couldn't that wasn't sustainable. Right. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I think that uh, you, you know oh, you know go, go, go ahead, Michael. Uh, go on, Peter. Then I have a thought. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, in terms of what you're you know some of the the things that were you know upsetting at the time. Uh, like one thing that really stands out to me was on the first trip out east, and we played in uh Detroit, and uh the the uh, the replacements were opening for the Neats, and uh, and we didn't have a sound man, and so Skip, who was the Neats sound guy, just I was a big Neats fan, and it gotten kind of friendly with the guys, and and uh, Skip uh, said he would mix the replacements, you know, just as a favor. And it was a place, I remember it being an upstairs place, and it was kind of a big room, and there weren't a lot of people there. And the replacements came on, and they were just deafeningly loud. And, and, uh, and so Skip basically was standing at the soundboard, and I'm with him, and he said, you know, they have to turn it down. You know, and I, you know, I, I, my stack, stock line was usually, that's not in my job description, you know, to tell them to turn it down. But he said, look, I, I'm, I'm going to leave the soundboard if they don't turn it down. I make a living from my ears and I'm not going to stay here. And so I actually walked up to the stage. And really, there was very few people in the room anyway. But I'm staying there at the stage and Paul sees me. And, he's, and I kind of was off to the side trying to not be obtrusive. And, um, and I, and he finishes the song and then knew that I was trying to give him some kind of information. So he kind of leans down and I said, Paul, Skip said, you know, if you don't turn it down, you know, I said, it's, it's incredibly loud in here. And the sound guy said, if you don't turn it down, he's just going to leave the room and you won't have a sound guy at all. And Paul turned around and he didn't say anything to me, just turned around, went back to his amplifier, turned it up and then walked back up to his mic stand and he had a cocktail, a whiskey that I'd probably brought him sitting uh, at the side of the stage there. And he kicked the whiskey so that it flew in my face, and I was drenched in whiskey. And then they crashed into the next song at twice the volume that they had. And then I walked back to the soundboard, and Skip had left. So, I mean, that was... and So I stormed out of the room. (laughs) And I, I, I don't remember if they finished the set without either of us there or whatever, but I stormed out of the room and marched out of the place and I was, I was out of cigarettes and I was going to, a, to look for a pack of cigarettes and actually I went into a bar n- nearby, sat down at the end of the bar and waited for somebody to wait on me and I finally looked around and the bartenders kept looking at me and not coming my way and then I realized I was in an all-black establishment and they weren't going to wait on this white <laughs> kid sitting at the end of the bar, I guess. Dripping with whiskey. <laughs> Dripping with whiskey. <laughs> so, and then I remember walking into a, a, a another store nearby where they had like a, you know, a grocery store and it was one of those behind bulletproof glass <laughs> and a lazy susan that they put my pack of cigarettes in and all that stuff and then i went back to the club but i mean there was that was one situation where i was just absolutely furious and embarrassed i mean but they uh, they had a lot of problem early
1: on too in
3: minneapolis when you're playing
1: locally with volume right i mean that's how it kind of terry katzman got involved as your sound guy i mean they were they
3: were loud yeah, yeah <laughs> but you know, they were loud historically. But I mean, I you know there weren't you know like I mean, folk city, Michael, you may remember, <laughs> uh, there was a woman who did sound there, right?
2: Oh God, and we, <laughs> they blew out the speakers, and the that the owners were so angry with me and uh, yeah. Ira,
3: and she said she said to me, she said if they don't turn down, I'm I'm leaving, and uh, and so of course they didn't turn down because that was music for dozens was. A series where they would bring in rock bands and to play semi unplugged or, or somewhat quiet <laughs> in a small room like Folk City. And the opening yeah. acts, by the way, That'll were the be, Del we Fuegos had, uh, and the Del we had, Lords. Like,
2: Sonic Youth there. We kind of gave up on the <laughs> part
3: of it. <laughs> but I mean, the Del Fuegos and the Del Lords played at a reasonable volume, did they not? Yeah. Yeah. They, and then they, the replacements they, yes. came on and they played at their normal volume. And so the woman left. So I actually got tried to do sound at Folk <laughs> City because there was the woman left. She just said, I'm not going to stay here. Probably
1: blew out the sound system that Bob Dylan had played through or whatever.
2: <laughs> right. It was the very same. That's why it fell apart. It was very <laughs> <No>. old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey! <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> regionalism thing and uh, Peter you probably feel the same way um you know when I came into the major label I felt like I was coming in as someone who was part of a scene of this interconnected regional thing for me it was Maxwell's and Manhattan Maxwell's in Hoboken where I live and where there are many bands uh and of course Manhattan and when I came to the record label, you know, I spent a lot of time going to, whether was Chapel Hill or Athens or Minneapolis um, or uh, other places trying to figure out what was going on. There was this wonderful uh, interconnected, non, non-internet connected mm-hmm. world of, of bands, clubs, uh, weekly, you know, alternative weeklies, Independent labels, people like Peter, who came out of, you know, working at a record uh, store and a record label, and knew the guys who ran the clubs. Um, so I always felt when we were in there, uh, uh, this uh, that I always was part of that world, as opposed to fully bought into this world of the major label and. I think that may have been part of where, where we were all at too, because we were kind of in it, but but all of our sensibilities were, you know, from from that world that, in the end, I think has created you know a legacy that continues to this day. You know, I think there are uh, from from all parts of America there are still you know little scenes happening here and there, and they're lucky enough now, you know, to be connected digitally as well as physically, and. Uh, You know, so when I think about all the crazy shit that we were going through, there was always a part of me that felt uh, a a bit like, okay, you want us to turn this down, but that's not where we're coming from. Uh, You know, I I, I don't know if I ever felt fully invested in that other world, and particularly when Peter stopped being the manager, (laughs) you know, I think things, you know, we were really facing that other world. With us versus the mentality. mentality.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the replacements, Paul always said, you know, we were outsiders even among the outsiders. And I think it's true even on like when they got to the major labels, they were on Sire, which was kind of the outsider label of Warner Brothers. They had Michael, who was a kind of outsider A&R <laughs> man doing A&R, you know what I mean? So it was like they and I don't think any of that was coincidence. I think the people that um, the replacements gravitated to or were willing to tolerate or, you know, had some faith in. Um, We're like I say, we're like more like them than most industry people and they ended up working with those people and in those places and on those labels, uh, you know, and, you know, it's not a coincidence they work with, with Michael or Jim Dickinson or, you know, Seymour Stein, you know what I mean? Those sure. are the only people in a way that that w-
3: could have seen the genius and been willing to tolerate the other stuff right. um, in the band. Or like when we were trying to look for you know, a real manager. I mean, I never really considered myself a, a, a real manager. I was kind of the guy that you know, initially ran across these four guys and I tried to help, you know, they did the music and I tried to help them do the other stuff. And then when we got to Warner Brothers, I mean, clearly I was, you know, uh, out of my league and we needed to find somebody else. And we started, you know, putting up our hand. Michael probably has better stories than I do about this, but we, you know, we, we put it out there that the replacements wanted, you know, sort of formal management. Nobody came to the table. Nobody was interested for the most part, just a handful of people. And we ended up... Uh, Interviewing seriously, only two uh, potential managers. One was Mike Lembo, uh, and the other was uh, Russ Rieger and Gary Habib at High Noon Management. And I remember Paul and I having that talk after we met with both parties, uh, and Paul saying, You know, look, we want to go with the young upstarts that are more like us. So we went with Russ and Gary, who were the new sort of young managers, and they had the Del Fuego's. and we thought that, that, you know, whereas Mike Lembo seemed like kind of a major label guy to mm-hmm. us.
1: Yeah, he, mm-hmm. Lembo, I think the connection was maybe he had managed NRBQ, and yeah. so that was in his favor. But, yeah, it is like this weird thing. I mean, they're possibly on the verge of becoming, you know, the hot band, I mean, which they would be in a few months. Uh, they were in Rolling Stone's first hot issue as a hot band and, you know, totally critically acclaimed, and nobody wanted to manage
2: them, yeah. really, yeah. you know, so. I mean, so-
3: Michael, do you remember anyone else that we considered? Not off the top of
2: my head, no. I, I, uh-huh. I forgot I, about Lembo too. I think you're I think you're <laughs> Kirk. Kurt. I realize, oh, my God, I, I scheduled an appointment with him tomorrow. He's going to be in town, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Coincidence. But I have, I'm i having, like, a dental <laughs> surgery. <now. laughs> when we get off the phone, I
3: got <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you But I just ran into Lembo last week at a Chris Damey event out here in L.A., so that was the first time I'd seen him in many years. God, okay. And uh, I'll I'll more. one I'll each one up That's you it. I'll one up you both.
2: Immediately bo- uh, email him when I get off
1: the phone. I'm I'm going to one up both of you. I have an even better Mike Lumbo story. I worked a my only job in the quote unquote music <clears throat> industry was when I was in college in Tucson, Arizona for uh, two weeks. And uh, I worked for a radio, college radio promotion company owned by Mike Lembo. So that's uh, so I actually work for him <laughs> briefly. And I'm so.
0: making a documentary currently with one of his former clients.
1: So. <laughs> All right. So maybe Mike Lembo is the center of the musical universe. I don't know. No, I I think so.
0: But yeah, I mean, I guess well, you know, we'll sort of, This has been so fantastic. Thank you guys so much. But is there, uh, if you can, I was, I'm always wondering this when people write um, books, uh, particularly uh, that are so. Uh, well researched and exhaustive is there are there any stories um and i throw this out to to michael and peter are there any stories that that weren't in the book that you recall finally that didn't or either had to be dropped or for whatever reason i mean there was
1: there is you know the book was 500 pages Mm -hmm. and was probably you know twice as long in its original draft and a lot of what got cut were anecdotes and tangents and, you know, there, I had a back section of notes that I was going to include, but it was, so maybe if we do an anniversary edition, some of that stuff will be restored. But I mean, the thing with the replacements is there's no shortage and, and there's been more than one, one book, although I like to think mine yeah. is the definitive one, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, everybody has a story or 10 stories, so I'm sure there was plenty of, of things that were missing, you know, that would be just kind of funny stories. And I can't remember anything that really
3: pained me that I lost. Uh, it's, there... it's like walking into a record store. I forget what I'm looking for. I like I mean, There's a million stories I've thought a hundred times, like, oh, there's a story that wasn't in Bob's book that should have been. And now you ask me. Well, as a joke, we, we end our, our podcast
0: every week with what are you listening to, which is the ultimate brain cleaner. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, if, I, if I, I didn't want to spring that on you because I know a lot of times when people say, do you have a good a story that you haven't told? Uh, you know, that's that's you know, sort of akin to saying, you know, right. please uh, develop Alzheimer's immediately.
3: I, I mean, I remember one thing I just it's just, uh, you know, I'm working on a soul asylum issue series and Dave Ayers just wrote a liner note about that was largely about Carl Mueller, and it was such a heartfelt piece that it made me think of um, some times that we've had with the replacements where Bob Stinson was, you know, there was just uh, something so just lovable about the guy, you know, the gentle giant, we called him from time to time, you know, he was just, there was something so sweet about him, and and he was such a strange guy, but one one, um, memory that I have that I maybe told Bob that didn't end up in the book that I just, a fond remembrance was we were in somewhere, in the in the Midwest, the southern part. I want to say like Tennessee or Kentucky or someplace down there. And we were in a. We used to get a couple of when we could afford two hotel rooms with uh, adjacent with doors that connected, you know. And it was, it was always such a circus staying in those rooms with those guys. And and but I remember um, at one point. Uh, I had the TV on in our, well, we have TVs on in both of our hotel rooms. I have the TV in, our, in the room I was in, and the new Paul McCartney video came on. And I'm a big McCartney fan, and it was for that, uh, one of the songs from that uh, album that doesn't end up being very good in retrospect called Give My Regards to Broad Street. Mm-hmm. But there was a really cool song on it, um, and now I'm just... Med- take It Away? or whatever. No, it wasn't Take It Away. Uh, but anyway, it was a great song, uh, and they had a video for it. And so it came on and clearly they had MTV on in the other room as well. Whatever it was we were watching that had videos on anyway. And, um, and so I'm watching it, and I'm rapt attention. And all of a sudden, Bob comes running into my room and dives under the table and unplugs my TV, and then runs out the door. <laughs> and it was just like I just thought that was so such a funny thing for Bob to do. So a few minutes later, the new a new Yes video came on, <laughs> and I ran in his room and unplugged his TV. So you know that would be one little funny thing that we had. Also, here's one that just popped into my head that one of my fondest memories of Bob Stinson uh, was that um, I was a huge Ricky Nelson fan. And when Ricky Nelson passed away, Bob actually was the one who called me up, uh-huh. called me on the phone and said, did you hear Ricky Nelson died? And I was so touched by the fact that he knew, you know, that he yeah. thought to call me up. I don't know. There's a couple for you.
0: <clears throat> Beautiful stuff. All right. Well, I think um, I will uh, close this off by saying I would love to have you guys back, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. and and uh, helping us celebrate our 100th at Brother, 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 but also just, yeah. you know, really, uh, it's great to talk to all of you because, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of what you guys helped create, and, um, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk you to know, us and fill us in. Can I
2: just throw in one last thing here? Please. Which is, despite all the rancor and stuff that went along with this band and, and its evolution and de-evolution, you know, I was very fond of Peter... When I met him and I trusted his musical judgment from the get go, not just because he was working with the band, but he had really good taste and he really was passionate about music and was. And like uh, I can name like a dozen other people, we were all part of that scene I was referring to before. Um, and here we are talking still as friends 35 years later or something. And so I think it really kind of speaks to. For all the craziness of that scene, it was really based on people who had shared enthusiasms and in some cases shared backgrounds, and we were all clueless at the same time about the same things, and we all, you know, well, we've kind of ended up here talking about this, but I think it says a lot about what this world was that... Whether it's uh, Peter and I, or myself and Glenn Morrow, who ran Barnum Records and was instrumental to a lot, or Ira and George, etc. We're still here. We all still know each other. Uh, It would be fun to hear from Paul once in a while, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) And on the
3: other hand, sometimes hearing from Paul isn't a lot of fun, so... Well, you know, the... the, the,
1: the yeah, well, you for, I'd rather hear from you, Peter. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> well, for me, and, and just to end it, for me, you know, the great moment was in 2014, the Replacements played their first, uh, you know, they reunited and done a bunch of festival shows, and they did their two first two headlining sets, and one was in St. Paul at a baseball stadium. It was like 14,000, 15,000 people, and Peter was there. And then the next week, they played uh, New York and sold out Forest Hills uh, Tennis Stadium, and Michael was there... And it's like, you know, I talked with, I saw Peter, because I was at the show in, in Minneapolis, and I talked with Michael, and it's like, you know, if you want a happy ending, there's your happy ending. Here, here are these, this band that you believed in, that you always hoped great things for, and these songs that you loved, and there's, you know, they're an arena act, and there's 15,000 people singing these songs back to them as the kind of anthems and, and, and hits, you know, quote unquote, that they always were. And, uh, you know, like I say, it's uh, slow and steady wins the race in, in some ways. And, and the replacements uh, for all the whatever difficulties for all the quote unquote commercial disappointments, they, you know, in the end, the music is what wins out. And, it, and it's won out. And, and I like to think that, you know, Peter's faith and, and, and Michael's faith in them won out as well. And so, um, you know, it's, it's like I say, it's it, it, it's a difficult story, but one that has a happy ending.
0: The, the story itself um, I guess we'll say goodnight. thank thanks. you very much thank you guys so much this is great I'm Wyndham Lewis on behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com follow us on Twitter and Facebook and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes thanks again for listening